podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Episode 15. Episode 15. Yes. Of, of the train of thought. <laughs> podcast. <laughs> this is a podcast with the Biblical Christ Research Institute. As always, I'm joined by my brothers in Christ, Eric Powers, Michael Weller, and you. Seltzer. I mean, Deron Gladden. I'm sorry. My bad. Good to be here. <laughs> so we're gonna uh, we're not gonna waste any more time. We we were kind of cutting up before we got on here, so the laughter has carried over for a minute. So all right. uh, today we're gonna get into the the first section of the doctrinal triage thesis, the introduction. And as always, um, I'm gonna turn it over to Eric so he can do what he does. I'm gonna go ahead and share this screen. And then you can have at it, brother. Okay, we got the thesis up on the screen. There it is. Um, can we post a link? I'm having a hard time. Let me just. I got you. I'll do it. Yeah, put the link on the <clears throat> comments of, of the. Oh, we find ourselves uh, in the introduction here. So I, I'm going to go through this and provide some commentary and talk about some of the decisions that were made here as this was composed and put together. And uh, so. The, the first part of the thesis, when you actually get into the um, meat of it, is uh, the introduction. And I wanted to start off in the introduction defining the topic, doctrinal triage. And so I started like this. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to kind of point out the, the time I spent in the library at the Master's Seminary and also at the college. I asked the guy that was in charge of the library how many volumes um, in, in the library there were that uh, that I could have access to. And so the way that he he put it like this, he said that the library at the Master Seminary in Sun Valley, California, allows access to more than 200,000 volumes. And so I kind of covered myself here because I didn't get an exact number, but uh, I've phrased in such a way that uh, if you have a fact checker who's checking the facts, that uh, if I was wrong here, um, yeah, kind of covering myself because I said it allows access to more than 200,000 volumes. So I didn't give an exact number. Does that make sense? I just kind of wanted to word it that way. And that's a lot. That's a lot of volumes. If you think about it Two more than 200,000 volumes. And I wanted to point out when I wrote this back in 2015, 2016, is that among this vast array of works, very few have been co concentrated on an emerging topic in evangelicalism, because this is an emerging topic. This is something that has come up, you know, that in the last, uh, you know, 20 some or last 20 years, because Albert Moeller uh, wrote what he wrote about this when he said that he invented the system in 2004. So that's less than 20 years ago. And so this is a this is a emerging topic. This is a novel topic. This is something new. This is something that was not around before. So that was important for me to bring up. And uh, and I'm going to explain why that's important as we go through this. Uh, but it is an emerging topic in evangelicalism. Before this triage issue, 
uh, you had uh, what is called uh, the postmodern movement, you know, where you had the um, leadership network that was put together by Peter Drucker and um, uh, uh, Bill Hybels in collaboration mm-hmm. with uh, the guy there in California. What's his name? Was it Rick Warren? Uh, Rick, Rick Warren. Warren. Rick Warren. So they went around and they found like some up and coming uh relevant trendy guys in the 90s one of them was brian mclaren the other one was uh rob bell um doug pageant and they put together uh the leadership network which out of that came the heresy of postmodernism movement that attacked uh the integrity of what of truth really i'm talking about the uh emergent church right the, the emergent movement and the emergent movement was an emerging the reason why they called the emergent movement because they're saying we have something new you know, that the church has never really had before. And we're trying to uh, use postmodernism, which was the reigning philosophy at the time. And we want to take that and we want to use that as a way uh, to seek seeker sensitive to, to teach that uh, at our churches, to draw in the culture that is um, that subscribes to postmodernism. And that was the emergent movement. And so um, that's kind of, uh, uh, I mean, that's antagonistic. That's negative. That's something bad that attacks the church. And so if that's the case, then now you have after that, after the the um, after the postmodernism movement with the emergent with the emergent church, with Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and all the rest. Now you have an emerging topic called the doctrinal triage. And I think this is the next major threat to uh, evangelicalism. Um, it's the, and, and really thinking about the church. This is the next thing that's attacking the church, just like postmodernism and the emergent church attacked the church in the nineties. <clears throat> so uh, I call this system doctrinal triage is the term that I'm coining that I coined in this thesis. Uh, but Moeller calls it theological triage, but I, I call it doctrinal triage for, for, the, for this point because uh, Moeller is triaging doctrine. So it, it would be, uh, you know, more fair to say that it's doctrinal triage, not theological triage, especially if it's being used as a hermeneutical principle, because essentially what you're doing is you're triaging doctrine. Uh, but he, he called it theological triage when it came out with this. And, um, and so in the thesis here, I say uh, hereafter, usually designated by DT, because I'm going to refer to this from now on as you're going through the thesis, sometimes theological triage, but, but usually designated by DT, just abbreviating. DT through the rest of the thesis is just an abbreviation of doctrinal triage. And uh, the reason why it's an emerging topic in evangelicalism, obviously, is because doctrinal triage is quite a novel concept in evangelicalism. So having said that, of, of those 200,000 volumes and, more, and having access to more than 200,000 volumes, doing my research, I found that very few volumes concentrated on this topic so we pointed out that that one book that it was just recently written by uh who, who wrote that a hill to die on it's called uh finding the right hills to die on by gavin ortland who is part of the gospel coalition uh, he was very biased in what he was choosing to research because he's not looking at all but, but for me i looked at everything i wanted to see if anyone else you know, so yeah, he, I, he, I actually went through his entire book and I didn't read it all the way, 
But I was uh, looking at the foot footnotes to see if he mentioned your thesis at all, and he did not. Yeah, and the work cited. So he just picked and chose what he wanted to put in there, and so that's not how you do. That's not how you do legitimate, you know, research, and, and that's not how you uh, are um, are genuine when you're approaching any any topic really. So. Um, accordingly, the inception of DT has been attributed to an article written on May 20th, 2004 by Albert Moeller. That's when this first came out, May 20th, 2004. And he is currently uh, right now, as he was in 2004, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, conservative seminary, uh, theological seminary in the United States. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. And I actually went there and, and handed a thesis to his secretary because he was busy, but he was in his office. And so I wanted to give him a, a, a copy of this and wrote a note for him. But um, I thought it was important as I was bringing this up to point out that point that I did the research while, while, I'm, uh, while I'm starting to look at this. I did the research and I didn't find a lot of information because all of that information that you do find when you're doing the research has to contribute to the actual definition. And you got to start with defining the topic that you're talking about. So you need a definition. So I wanted to go to the um, the original source and actually quote what he said as he defines this, which I which I do here. So as I start off this entire thing, I give a, uh, a block quotation here um, of Dr. Moeller's definition to this system that he says that he is the architect of the one that you know he's saying that he is the one that that came up with this. And so you have to attribute this to him and you have to. A couple things here. You have to um, acknowledge that he is the the one who made this up. He's the architect of this. He's the one that um, created this system. Okay, that's the first thing that you have to admit. Everyone has to. So um, I don't care what anyone says. You know, you uh, two rules you have to follow here. One, it was Moeller who came up with this. He's the one that invented this. And um, and the second thing that you have to admit, and you have to follow these rules is that um, this is novel. It's new, 2004. So first, you have to accept that Moeller's the one that invented this. Second, that it is novel in evangelicalism. It only goes back as far as 2004. And so this is his definition of theological triage. And this is a three-level system of doctrinal importance. And he wrote this. This is, this is him defining his system. Today's Christian... And again, why does he have to say today's Christian? Christianity, Christians have been around since the apostolic age. But he's interested in today's Christians. So right there, that's going to cause, that should cause some, some alarm bells to go off, right? Because something that, something that uh, Brian McLaren came up with, the leader of the emergent movement, um, he, he said, you know, a new kind of Christian. Uh, he wrote a book about a new type of Christian. I showed this to my grandmother before she passed away. I said, hey, this guy wrote this book. It's about a new kind of Christian. And she looked at me. She goes, what do you mean a new kind of Christian? There's no such thing as a new type of Christian. There's only Christian. And it goes back to the apostolic age. It's important. So today's Christian faces the daunting task of strategizing which Christian doctrines and theological issues are to be given the highest priority in terms of our contemporary context. Yeah. So why is that not a problem for for everybody? <laughs> right. Right. That smacks of this postmodernism novel, you know, uh, Brian McLaren type of uh, uh, nomenclature. 
This is like a Brian McLaren nomenclature here. Today's Christian faces the daunting task of strategizing which Christian doctrines and theological issues are to be given highest priority in terms of our contemporary context. That sounds like something that Doug Padgett would say or Brian McLaren or Rob Bell, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it reeks of cultural rel- relativism. You know, let's yeah. let's let's keep up with the times and let's alter Christianity in a way to where it keeps up with the times as opposed to remaining faithful to standing on the word of, of God as it has been once for all uh, given to the saints. Yeah. And so for Dr. Moeller, the question is, why do you sound like um, Brian McLaren? <laughs> yep. Um, theological seriousness. So there he's like, you know, you're not serious unless you consider what I'm saying here. The- and, and you're not really theologically serious. Um, theological seriousness and maturity demand that we consider doctrinal issues in terms of their relative importance. There it is. Relative. So that's, a, that's a standard of maturity and seriousness. The, <laughs> the key word, the sign here is relative importance. Does relative importance determine maturity and seriousness? Again, that sounds like something that Brian McLaren would say. Um, I mean, the issue with that is that relative importance, if you understand what relativism actually is, then Duran could have a different relative importance than, than Mike. And Mike could have a different relative importance than me, which goes back to what I was saying when you asked me about that grid I found. It's like mm-hmm. every denomination has, and Duran mentioned this on the last podcast about, you know, Pentecostals having, or Charismatics having a different kind of tier of, they because they consider baptism of the Holy Spirit is like a top priority for them. So this relative importance does nothing for anybody. Oh, yeah. But he's tying maturity and seriousness to that. Like, unless you think of it this way, you're not mature. You're not mm-hmm. serious about theology. So that's how he's starting this off to kind of get you, you know, to conform to what, he, to what he's saying. You feel some of the guilt wrapped up in this if you don't choose to do this. And so... Um, Again, I, I, I so I read these two cla- these two sentences here, and, and I'm like, that sounds like something Brian McLaren would say. Okay, Doctor Moeller, why do you sound like Brian McLaren? And I'm allowed to say, Brian, I'm allowed to say, Doctor Moeller, why do you sound like Brian McLaren if you sound like Brian McLaren? Yeah. And so people listening here need <laughs> need to understand, uh, have some humility, and be like, you know, okay, look at what he's saying. Stop trying to justify him because he's on he's a celebrity platform. But if he sounds like that, he sounds like that. Dr. Mueller, if you sound like that, you sound like that. Oh, Eric, you're right. I do sound like that. I made a mistake. I, I repent. But they, they refuse. They, there's no humility. You know? So, so you're infallible. You never make mistakes. Just accept the fact. Today's Christian faces the daunting task of strategizing which Christian doctrines and theological issues are to be given the highest priority in terms of their con- contemporary context. Yeah, Brian McLaren. Theology, theological seriousness and maturity demand that we consider doctrinal issues in terms of their relative importance. Brian McLaren, you sound like Brian McLaren. You sound like Brian McLaren. And you know, another thing too, brother. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't have it both ways from their angle. Like you can't postulate not only a system, but a standard before Christians and then somehow try to hide from the public scrutiny of being tested by the actual objective standard. Yeah. So, you know, you can't you can't say that this is 
what today's Christian ought to be held to and measured by. And now you're telling me how I'm sanctified, how I grow into in my faith. And, uh, and, and, and how you're mature. Yeah, mature. Exactly. Exactly. And then so, so I have to so time, I have to follow your your system here is what you're saying. I have to follow it in order right. for me to feel like I'm mature. So either you're right or you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. So if you don't accept that, then you are having motifs of postmodernism. Or, you or, or you're not since you're not being sensitive and loving if you don't practice the triage. Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways that they try to justify and try to, you know, make you feel like you're or try to get guilt you to kind of be quiet and, and move to move aside or get on the shelf. And so they'll say you're unloving, you know, if you, but listen, we, we're interested in just bringing these, these things up and challenging people. It's, it's a challenge. So accept the challenge and examine yourself. You know, it's okay. It's, it's, it's not, I'm, I'm not in sin for challenging you. Right. You know, I did nothing wrong here. So if it's a pseudo unity and I'm challenging it because, you know, I love you and I want you to, to uh, get out of it, then, you know, that's, I, I didn't do anything wrong. So I, I, I think, uh, um, and many people will agree with me and they have that those first two sentences smack of the emergent movement. So you sound like Brian McLaren. I mean, that's a challenge. So take it back, think about it, examine it, look at it. And then so he, he starts off with that, and now he gets into the actual definition of the thing. First level theological issues would include those doctrines most central and essential to the Christian faith. Included among these most critical doctrines would be doctrines such as the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, justifi justification by faith, and the authority of Scripture. And so I would agree that those are all essential and if you err on any of those, then you're a heretic, 100%. And so uh, I know Dr. Moore would say the same thing. But he moves on to say, ellipsis here. The set of second-order doctrines is distinguished from the first-order set by the fact that believing Christians may disagree on the second-order issues, though this disagreement will certainly, or the, the, through, though this disagreement will create significant boundaries between believers. So where does it say that we're allowed to disagree on those things anyway? And where does it say that they're second tier? That's, that's what I'm questioning and challenging because I, I can't find it in the Bible where it says that. So who are you to say what we can, what we may and may not do? I mean, is it your opinion? Then it's your opinion. But who are you to say what we may and may not do? You know, but what does the Bible say? Uh, you know, I'm interested in what God commands, not what man commands. So he goes on to say, uh, when Christians organize themselves into congregations and denominational forms, these boundaries become evident. Second order issues would include the meaning and mode of baptism. Well, there's a correct uh, um, meaning and mode of baptism, and then there's the incorrect. So again, what does the Bible teach concerning that? You know, and who are you to say that it was first or second tier or third tier? And he goes on to say, uh, and, and he actually uh, defines these things further. And I'm going to bring up other areas where I'm just giving you the, de the, the gist of his definition first. And I quote him quite a few times throughout this thesis. Third order issues are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even within local congregations. I would put most of the debates over eschatology, for example, in this category. 
Uh, the first footnote I have on page one is this writer will use the label doctrinal triage and theological triage synonymously. So they are used synonymously. So if you go on the Internet and you Google theological triage, my thesis is not going to show up because there's a lot of people, especially lately, uh, that are popular, that have a following um, like uh, the Gospel Coalition or so and so who's who in the zoo. Um, and if you and if you click on them on a lot of these tyracks, you'll find that if you t if you type in theological triage, their their articles are going to come up. But certainly Al Mohler uh, is going to come up first. But if you type in doctrinal triage, mine is like second because already thousands of people have clicked on the PDF online, and we've also mailed out and, and sent out quite a few things. So um, I'll point out that, that I'm certainly uh, a contender here in this issue. So it, the, the exposure, the degree of exposure is something that should be included in anyone uh, bringing this up, because I'm not interested in, in, uh, in um, book sales or how many people clicked on the PDF. I'm interested in having a legitimate, robust debate concerning this matter, because I am afraid that this has become a hermeneutical principle in evangelicalism. So I am fighting for the purity of the church. I'm fighting for exegesis. I'm fighting for sound doctrine. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why you brothers are doing what you're doing. We're not interested in making money or making a name for ourselves or having a following. We're interested in championing sound doctrine and carrying the torch passed down from the apostles' apostolic doctrine. We're interested in those features. But the reason why I bring that up is because um, don't just type in theological triage. Also type in doctrinal triage because the terms are used synonymously. Theology and doctrine, I look at that because I get my uh, theology from the Word of God, from doctrines from the Word of God. So, and essentially that's what Moeller is talking about here. He's talking about triaging doctrinal positions. So it's a doctrinal triage. So, so think of the terms synonymously and they're used synonymously, synonymously throughout this thesis, but for the most part, they're usually going to be, um, the, this topic itself usually is going to be designated as DT or doctrinal triage. Uh, second footnote uh, is at the end of that block quote that he's bringing up. It's uh, R. Albert Moeller Jr., a call for theological triage in Christian maturity was the title of his original uh, uh, um, article. Um, and it's so so when he wrote this for the first time, it was a call for theological triage and Christian maturity because he's noticing that uh, across the evangelical landscape and modern evangelicalism, there's a lot of immaturity. And so he identified a problem, but his solution to the problem is worse than the problem is what I'm arguing. Yes. So, I mean, I respect him and I and appreciate the fact that he, he, he's seeing that there's a lot of immaturity across the, the wide evangelical, modern evangelical landscape. Um, but again, uh, if, this is, if, he, if this becomes, people postulate this as a hermeneutical principle and it's not self-attested from the word of God as being a hermeneutical principle, um, in that sense, uh, he, although he identified a problem, which we all identify, we all would say that, that uh, modern evangelicalism... Uh, at a wide scale is pretty immature. Um, his solution, though, to the problem is worse than the problem for those reasons, because uh, a lot of people use this as a hermeneutical principle. So um, I go on to write, uh, in other words, the theological triage is the practice of prioritizing biblical doctrines to their individual degree of importance, labeling them as of primary importance, secondary importance, or tertiary importance. Moeller's thesis was that doctrines from the word of God differ in level of importance. That's what he's saying. We'd all agree that that's what he's, how he's defining this. 
and that these levels of importance dictate the levels at which fellowship is possible with others among the Christian consensus. Today, a little over a decade after his article, many have promoted doctrinal triage as the solution in determining which issues two professing Christians can agree or disagree on and nevertheless truly be saved as a primary issue, as well as the ecumenical paradigm for cross-denominational relations to uh, exist and conference together around a primary issue. And so that's exactly what uh, is, is being produced by this. And so why am I writing then? I'm, t- I'm, I'm laying out the definition and I'm explaining the problem and I'm saying the solution to the problem is worse than the problem, et cetera, et cetera. So for those gentlemen that uh, have come at me and said there's a trash thesis, uh, you write a thesis then and, and let's see, we'll see how you do. Anyway, uh, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm giving you the definition and I'm, I'm explaining exactly what it is and I'm telling you why I'm writing. That's something that John does in the Gospel of John. I love the way that John writes the Gospel of John and in First John. And he also gives the, um, in, uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, he lays out the whole book of Revelation or Jesus laying out f- for him because God chose the human authors to write down what God wanted in the scriptures. And there, uh, in, especially in the Gospel of John, First John, he says, I write to you. So he tells you exactly why he's writing. And so I want to follow that example. So like whenever I write something and I introduce a topic or lay out the definition, I'm telling you exactly why I'm writing. I'm not being esoteric like in majority of, um, you know, books and articles that we get in modern evangelicalism where they're just trying to entertain you. And they're not really telling you why they're writing and they're all over the place and it's confusing and they're jumping around a lot. But I want to lay out the definitions. I want to jump to to the issue. I want to look at the issue and challenge people concerning that. So I write here in this paragraph exactly why I'm writing. Uh, This thesis is interested in examining from the New Testament if there is any biblical warrant for the doctrinal triage. That's why I'm writing. Accordingly, this writer will examine selected passages from the New Testament used by proponents of doctrinal triage to argue for the validity of their system. The approach of this writer will be the self-affirmational rule from Scripture so that prepositional uh, word there from is the, uh, smacks of exegesis. You're drawing out of the author's intended meaning. You're drawing from the author's intended meaning. Uh, from scripture called the literal grammatical historical approach. That's, self, that's scripture's self-attested principles for hermeneutics. The, the Bible tells us how we're supposed to interpret the Bible, in other words. Uh, to draw out from the scripture the author's original intent and then expound it. The literal grammatical historic approach identifies the laws of grammar and literary form, the facts of history, and the framework of context. That's a quote from John Grasmick, Principles and Practice of Greek Exegesis. This is an excellent uh, resource as he explains and goes over uh, the scripture self-attested principle of, hermene- of hermeneutics, the literal grammatical historical approach. And so that's what I'm championing. That's what I am representing here, and that's what I'm fighting for, that this, you know, that this would be how we approach the Scripture because this is the way God wants us to read the Scripture. This is what the Scripture tells us, how we're supposed to interpret the Scripture. And so uh, in the introduction, we're going to talk about that. We're going we're to talk about sound biblical hermeneutics, how you're supposed to interpret the Bible. And so I, if you turn to page, to page three, I asked a question. 
has doctrinal triage become a hermeneutical principle? Has it become a hermeneutical principle? Since the inception and reception of Moeller's article, a call for theological triage and Christian maturity, doctrinal triage has gained serious momentum of popularity in evangelicalism. Would you guys agree with that? I mean, this is like, this is like a major popular theme. Yeah. Absolutely. Today in evangelicalism. I mean, it's really popular. Be that as it may, comma, the danger exists to postulate doctrinal triage as a hermeneutical principle of the interpretational process for scripture. It's dangerous if the Bible does not tell us that that's the way we're supposed to interpret the Bible. Uh, for example, the conception of the Christocentric hermeneutic. I talked about that last time. There was a movement called the Christocentric hermeneutic where um, its proponents would look throughout all the scripture and said everything uh, points to some feature of Christ in a sense of like specific things like, you know, the, the pericope of the axe head floating through the surface. They, they would say, you know, that represents the resurrection of, of Christ, that, that event in the Old Testament and like stuff like that. And so that doesn't mean that, though, the axe head floating to the surface. Um, so they're just kind of making making up this stuff as they, they're reading through the Old Testament. And uh, the Bible tells us not to do that, um, not to uh, overextend typology where it no longer becomes typology, but becomes everything's allegory. Mm -hmm. uh, the Bible does not teach that. There's certainly typology in the Old Testament, but it's not this hyper type typological hermeneutic uh, that was really not really typology. It's more just everything's allegory. Um, and so that would be an example of the Chris Christocentric hermeneutic. It sounds it sounds good. I mean, you can put that. I mean, I, I could, you know, I could put his name and, and say everything centered around him and say this is my hermeneutic, but then make wrong conclusions like they do often when they use this with, you know, the one example is the, the axe head floating to the surface of the water. And then they're saying, see, that's Jesus being raised from the dead or typology of that. However, is doctrinal triage a self-attested hermeneutical principle from the Word of God, or has man opposed a triage system upon the Word of God to allow for the reader to distinguish which biblical doctrines have more weight and importance from others? And as we determined last time, what Chris was bringing up, we would say, yes, that's what they're doing. They're saying that uh, man can now impose upon, oppose the triage system um, upon the Word of God to allow for the reader to distinguish which biblical doctrines have more weight than others. And so you can do this in your denomination. If you're Lutheran, you can put together your Lutheran statement, be like, look, I'm triaging or, you know, Pres Presbyterian. Like I still have fellowship with these Baptists because we're, we're agreeing on primary. Um, but I'm going to uh, use the triage system. I'm going to write my own um, doctrinal statement. And uh, you know, everyone has a different answer for these questions. Hey. Hey. Go ahead, Mike. No, Go ahead, I'm going to say, so, so he, he actually refutes himself by his own standard, though. And I don't think people see the hypocrisy in this, that even one of the distinguished tenets of his, of his understanding of the core doctrines is the authority of Scripture, except he, 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 does, he denies that. He won't outright come out and say that, but he is by setting up this, this hermeneutic. And then even before that, when he says of relative importance, he denies it. So he's just inconsistent all over the place. It just sounds good to people's ears so they can keep this pseudo unity. There's no unity at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then the other problem you mentioned, uh, denominations triaging, 
well, you can actually triage the triage within the de- the denomination. Sure. So, so when does it stop? Yeah, exactly. You know, especially yeah. in in certain dom- denominations where they're a little more loose with their doctrine, and then you'll have like uh, people on one side of the congregation believing one thing, and then on the other side they're believing something else. So, oh yeah. So the triage gets triaged, and when does that stop? It's just an endless cycle. Exactly. Um, so like in, in the next paragraph, this is very, you guys are going to find this very interesting because I brought this before my advisor and, and he actually pointed me to this source. I asked him about this. What do you think? He says, well, you know, you know, I think you got something here, Eric. And I was like, well, have you ever heard of this anywhere else? Have this ever come up because you're a professor, you have been that such for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, have you seen any, any of this before? And he goes, you know, it kind of reminds me of a hermeneutical uh, hermeneutics uh, manual written by Grant R. Osborne. And you're going to notice that he, here's here's a here's a typo here because I forgot the E at the end of his name. But in the in the footnote, I put it in there. So some people will point that out. Uh, they take exception, like a little a little uh, mistake here and there. Um, and again, that's not uh, that's not content. I just forgot to put the E in there. <laughs> so that was the mistake was made by fatigue um, in comparing manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, Johannine was had uh, a movable new or, or more news than other other manuscripts. And those are the kind of things that uh, the the uh, as you compare manuscripts to manuscripts, it's like they're like typos, but it doesn't really mess with the content. So, you know, I'm I'm human. Uh, to air as human as uh, to air as human as Homer said, <laughs> or when uh, when someone airs Homer yawns, I think is the expression. So you might find some typos, some spelling mistakes, some nonsensical errors. Oh, you have the hermeneutical spiral. Look at that. I do. Oh wow, I had to I had to check it out from the library, and I, you know, I was debating whether or not to um, <laughs> use it. In uh, uh, Duran and I were. I think we used a Rick Warren book to um, keep warm. One, <laughs> we ran out of we ran out of firewood. The practice of X is alive yeah. and well by its application. Yeah, exactly. We we ran out of firewood one one seminary Christmas Eve, and uh, and like the, tiny the purpose the purpose driven life kept us warm. Yes, it like had tiny its Tim. purpose. Yeah, yeah it did. <laughs> Yeah, praise God. You know, you know, you know what I was gonna say too, brother. Uh, that, that that you know, to to try to discredit an argument by straining at a gnat, you know, and trying to, you know, I, I saw one thread where you, you know, you graciously, biblically tried to hold this before. Yes. Called academic minds, and they just can kinda, I can I can I explain the con the the context of that one? Of course, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So so basically, there was a the former librarian read it and goes ah, look i see an error there's errors all over the place and i was like so what exactly is the error and he goes there's no place called the the master's theological seminary it's just the master's seminary and so i was like okay well <laughs> i made a mistake i put theological i wish it was called the master's theological <laughs> seminary but apparently now apparently it's the master's seminary so i in, in the thesis i put masters the master's theological seminary and uh, and and I said, you know, that was the only that was the only mistake. He said there's mistakes everywhere, but that was the only. So I just said, uh, you know, thank you for your input. Um, and instead <laughs> of like, 
Yeah, I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, but everyone's trying to embarrass me for some reason. I don't get it. Hey, that's the caliber of uh, arguments that we're coming up against. Hold so. on, I'll be right back. Hold on one yeah. second. That's the type of arguments. So yeah, I mean to to you know to to strain at a gnat in that way and then to not examine, you know, what's actually being written and not take it seriously. I just you know, I, I you know, I believe it's the kind of thing I have to say in one area I agree with Al Moeller that there is this kind of immaturity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anytime you look at a thesis and you want to count the error or you want to, you know, type a three sentence Facebook post up against a research thesis and just say your conclusion is it's trash. Like you can't even tell people why. To me, that's the kind of stuff that Al Mohler was lamenting when he yeah. founded the wrong solution. Yeah, that because- you have people who don't even want to look at a theological thesis long enough to say, well, here are the areas with which I disagree. And that's and, truly uh, being divisive. They're divisive. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying that's to unite. A, I'm trying to unite yeah. people based on sound, the unity that comes from sound, biblical hermeneutics, the unity that comes from yeah. sound doctrine. And they're trying to divide that where I'm trying to divide a pseudo unity that's only going to lead people and the church into a, a downgrade controversy. So I'm trying to stop them from doing that. But also I want people to be united. I want people to be united, united on sound doctrine. I want the church to be united sound doctrine. I want what Paul's talking about in first Corinthians, that they're all you know the same mind. Hey, uh, Duran, can you uh, expound uh, um, what, what you meant by straining at nets? Yeah, it's from the phrase that the Lord himself uh, brings up when he's talking about uh, the religious leaders in Israel. And he says, uh, he uses kind of the term straining, uh, swallowing a camel and straining at gnats. Uh, but that, I mean, they're placing this undue emphasis on areas that are literally inconsequential uh, to the argument itself. And I would say saying that there is uh, a mistake in a paper that doesn't affect the content, you miss the vow. Uh, to me, to not assess the argument itself because I've missed the vow in a paper, uh, to me, you are overemphasizing something that's inconsequential. Sure. Uh, the mm-hmm. lack. So I'm not even triaging. I'm saying you're you're making something that's inconsequential now a matter of I'm just not going to address uh, the argument whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it's the it, same thing that the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, and, at and large a, did with Christ. And a, and a lot of people wouldn't really care. Um, Right. And I, I and I and I was going through this, you know, people in my church, I was like, just try to look for um, typos and someone noticed this and I didn't notice. I was like, oh, thank you very much. But I'm saying, like, if you take exception to this and you're trying to discredit and argue away what I'm what I'm, you know, the, the position I'm taking just because on just because of that, then uh, then you are in the category exactly what you're talking about, Duran. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I hope I answered that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the same mindset of liberalism taking uh, textual criticism and and, and nitpicking that and and acting as if they're refuting God's word. It's the same mentality. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, So let me see that book again there, Chris. Chris, you got the book up? Yeah, you can't can't see it. I can't. Oh, I can't see it. Oh, you have it up? Okay. I like the cover looks like a 1980s horror movie. <laughs> Hold on, let me stop sharing for a second. There oh, go. there you go. Yeah, it looks like a 1980s uh, horror thriller. Yeah, this is like, a, psychological like a, thriller. The Evangelical Spiral. <laughs> this, <laughs> um, <laughs> this version, this is 
from 1991, so it's kind of outdated. I think they have no. a, an updated our, one. Our, oh, yeah. our brother, our brother, our brother asked a question. Uh, Andy, um, who oh. actually wrote, who actually wrote a, a review of this, and we appreciate that. Oh, dude, he's on um, here. That's awesome. He, yeah. he, he, mm-hmm. he asked the question: Does stuttering invalidate the sermon? Absolutely not. Moses no. himself said, <laughs> I'm, "I'm slow I'm, as speech. I'm slow as speech, man." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got a speech for so, And Paul the Apostle, it talks about his lack of physical qualities. Jesus himself in Isaiah 53, nothing beautiful uh, in the sense to, that one would uh, that one would regard him as being the king of kings um, in oh, that yeah. sense. So, I mean, there's there's this, you know, that's a great question because there's this physical infatuation with communication and speech theory and handsomeness and all these worldly impressions that mm-hmm. make you say, okay, now I'm going to engage your arguments That's because true. you look the part. Like Eric says, because you're a tie rack, uh, I'm going to go ahead and engage your arguments and what you have to say. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they, they give you classes in in certain seminaries on your oratorical skills. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and, and uh, I mean, if, if you're, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're, if you're sound, but if you're, right. if you're, if you think that there's power in, the, in, in that in of itself, then that, right. then you know, but you know we should seek to be uh, well, speak well, to be excellence. clear, yeah, right. clear and speak with excellence. And even like you know, volume um, is it can be very important depending on the context. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but again, but if that's everything for you, and you think that there's power in that to convert people and all the rest, then then that's that's definitely a problem. But um, uh, <laughs> sorry, yeah. he, he made some people are some people are better. <laughs> Andy some made- people. Andy yeah, made the comment said, "Praise God, handsomeness is not a prerequisite." Yes, and, and, and I, can, I, I, I can I can relate to that in the contemporary context. I got to say, I can too. No, I don't yeah, know. no, because listen, listen, listen. There's people, there's people that are um, that are that that are ugly, and then there's people that are pretty, and then there's people that are pretty ugly. But thankfully, that has nothing to do oh with gosh. with any, with. Uh, whether someone's called it, if uh, Andy's listening right now. If he can, um, it'd be nice to see uh, him post the um, post his um, yeah. If you can post, post his, your review, post his review, yeah, yeah. because awesome. there are people I just want to point out that have come that have uh, read this and um, commended it. Uh, yeah, commended yeah. it because because of the um, the integrity of the uh, the arguments in the sense that we're we're trying to protect the little grammatical historical hermeneutic is important to us. And it's important to other people too. Absolutely. And so um, I appreciate that. Not everybody is, you know, trying to, to crush this. There's a lot of people that have read this and, and that's, and, and honestly, that's the way that it's supposed to be. You know, you look oh. at everyone throughout church history, they're, they're protagonists and antagonists. And so you just have to, you're conscious before the Lord, you got to work this out, you know, as you study the argument, you know, is, is what they're saying, is it biblical? Is the other position biblical? So, Yeah, yeah, because you I mean, you have you have armchair activists, you have armchair theologians. I think the brothers keyboard warriors. Yeah, keyboard warriors. You have brothers who are laboring like our brother who's about to post this and trying to really get people to see the emphasis of of the unity of Scripture. And so this is an encouragement to them. This is a help to them. uh, That's that's actually that's actually what Andy's saying here, too. He said, FYI. FYI, I put this thesis in the hands of the people in our church, and it has opened many eyes and begun and many, many helpful discussions. Praise God. So that's a blessing. Thank you, Andy. We appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. 
And we're um, glad so, that they're having discussions. That, that's the whole thing. Yeah, right. and I that's and I want people. And I want people talk to about think. Doctrine. Yeah, I want people to talk about doctrine and think about the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. I want them to think about how they're interpreting the scripture. Is really the main thing to take away from this. That's a great um, point, Mike. Oh yeah. Um, and so yeah, the hermeneutical spiral. So um, the guy who approved this and helped me helped me write this and 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 work through this, um, the professor at the Master Seminary, he pointed me to a, a source called uh, the Hermeneutical Spiral by Grant R. Osborne. And um, he kind of came up with a system that that I found that was similar to to Moeller. So I, I'm thinking it's my opinion. And I don't know because I didn't ask Dr. Moeller this. We didn't have a conversation about this. But I'm assuming that uh, that Moeller read this because he reads lots of books. And Grant Osborne is a commentator. Uh, he writes uh, commentaries on the Bible. He has some commentaries out. He's a professor. Yeah. I forget where I forget where he's at. But he's definitely a contender. He's been around for a while, and he's someone that someone like Moeller would read. And so, um, and reading, being pointed to this resource and reading it, uh, he set forth principles, hermeneutical principles, in determining which doctrines are essential to the core of biblical Christianity, which he asserted, or which he called cardinal doctrines. And we've we've you've heard that before. Such yeah. and such is a cardinal doctrine, especially in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, Trinity, uh, Eric. yeah, the Trinity. And then yeah, uh, r- recently, um, some Catholics that are in leadership and st- as such, um, you know, Biden is trying to pull the religion religion card. And then some of these Catholic got, uh, cardinals or um, archdiocese or whatever they're called in their ecclesiastical structure. They're saying, no, we're not really going to affirm Biden because he's committed what we would consider a cardinal sin, you know, he's he's supporting abortion and uh, he's not allowed to take the the uh, the their their version of um, communion. They deny him mm. because because he's uh, he supports abortion and even the Roman Catholic Church. Then they they feel very strongly and they think people that um, are advocate for abortion are going to go to hell. Is what is what he said, and so he. He's like he's his soul is in danger for participating in um, in our version of communion. And so he's not allowed to take communion. So he can't really pull that. But you've heard that term, you know, cardinal this and cardinal that either cardinal doctrines or cardinal sins. And so Grant Os- Grant Osborne, as he's uh, talking about hermeneutics in his manual that he would use uh, for his students at wherever he teaches, he came with a system and he said that, you know, the cardinal doctrines, they're essential to the core of Christianity and um, uh, and then which doctrines are not clear in Scripture. He asserted as never intended by God to serve as controlling beliefs in the church. And so that's from that book, Hermeneutical Spiral. There's a footnote that could bring you to the end of the page. Uh, Osborne uh, created a grid in which a doctrine is inserted for the purpose to determine if it is a cardinal doctrine or a middle position called denominational distinctives or a non-cardinal non-essential doctrine to which there can be tolerance and dialogue. So there you have a three-tier structure and like the integer boxes that we had when we were in algebra or whatever in math, you know, you plug, you plug in and you see if you come to the same conclusion. Well, he had this kind of chart where you plug in doctrines, you know, and you see uh, what you get. Is it, is it a cardinal? Is it, um, is it a denominational distinctive second tier or is it third tier uh, a doctrine 
that's not essential where there can be tolerance and dialogue. He argued that a cardinal doctrine is a theological belief that is central to Christian faith and clearly taught as such in Scripture. Uh, that is the return of Christ. So he even said the return of Christ is an eschatological feature. Yeah. He would say um, that in and of itself, just the return of Christ is a um, is central to Christian faith as a cardinal doctrine. But then didn't he say earlier that <laughs> eschatology is not a well, Al Moore did. Al yeah, Moore. Al Moore did. Yeah. But but here uh Grant Osborne uh disagrees. But if you ask Al Moore, you know, in general, the return of Christ, just the fact that he's returning, would you say that's essential first here? And he he would probably say, Yeah. Yeah, it's essential. Yeah. Mm. Um he would just say, like, uh, and, and he goes on to say that, you know, the distinction between premillennialism. Uh, millennialism, post-millennialism, that would be an eschatological feature concerning features of his, of his second coming that he would say that that is, uh, is tertiary. That's what we disagree on, yeah. Um, and then uh, he goes, a non-cardinal, non-essential doctrine is one that is, not, that is not clear in Scripture or is not presented as a mandatory belief of the church, that is millennium or tribulation positions. The middle ground position is a denominational distinctive that can become a cardinal doctrine, but should really be the object of tolerance and categorized as a non-cardinal doctrine, according to Grant Osborne. According to Osborne, one example of a denominational distinctive is the viability of women as pastors in the church. And it's interesting because that's also what Moeller, Moeller. says second tier. Yeah. So that's why I'm assuming that Moeller borrowed from Osborne. It sounds like they're doing a floor exercise in gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> but Albert Moeller also said this issue of it's all over ecclesi the place. ecclesiology, um, you know, of women, um, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Um, he's just said a second tier. And that's really Osborne said that. And he said it first. So I'm thinking, I'm assuming that Moeller, although he said he came out this 2004 and he barred it from the emergency room, I think Osborne's hermeneutical spiral probably influenced uh out more and i'm assuming that because i have not asked him that so if ever i'm given the opportunity to debate him that would be something that i would like to ask him because you so, get a section of questions so Go listen ahead. to listen to what osborne now you you had the second edition i got the first edition so it's the pages don't match up but um he says finally i would note three levels of authority and this is in reference to determining theological models. Yes. He says, firstly, is personal authority denoting those formulations adhered to by me, but contested by others within my tradition. And the mm -hmm. second one is community authority, referring to those beliefs that on the basis of accepted tradition control my denomination or group, but are challenged by other Christian communities. And the authority of cardinal doctrines, there's a word you were looking for, talking about which cross traditional and denominational boundaries as key beliefs of all christians yes so even in that you got to kind of yeah he even triages authority so yeah this, yeah exactly <laughs> um eric, eric, I say, andy, no, andy no go ahead uh after you're done mike i want to bring up something that andy andy put on well, the well there's uh, there's a problem too because even moeller if you're familiar and he, he obviously we talked about he's the head of at Southern Theological Seminary, they would never affirm women ever or allow them. He says, I do not affirm women as pastors or teachers. And he actually had a serious issue when he came there and you can find it. 
And this lie, it's, it's a video of him engaging the students there where they're enraged that he disavows women. So then to say that a second tier, and he's just a hypocrite, again, across the board, um, hmm. by his own standard. He, he, he says this, though. He literally says that, I, that women cannot be passed. So you cannot say then it's a second tier issue if that's what you're, you're stating, which he's right. They cannot. Yeah, and, it, and it's a warning, too, for people that are strong in the beginning but fade over time and compromise, too. Yes. Keep a close would, watch. Because would, would he would he say would he have said this in 2004? Would he have said that when he first started? I don't know. Um, so I think it's, it's both. You know, there's hypocrisy involved that we all need to examine our lives and see if that's true of us. But there's also, you know, you have to um, persevere. You know, uh, was it First Timothy, chapter four, verse 12? Keep a close watch on yourself yeah. and the teaching. Persevere in these things. For so by doing you ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you, is that First Timothy four twelve? Uh, let me see. We looked that up. In the meantime, uh, Andy wrote. Um, side note, on the comment section, you don't need to go there now. But Doctor Chow made the same argument as Shep Kong sermon. Oh, we'll go there now, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his, his proposition was that the doctrine of creation affects all categories of systematic theology, and I would agree uh, with uh, Doctor Chow's statement on that. I gave Dr. Chow my thesis before I left to return to the East Coast, and I explained uh, some of the features to him, and he said, you know, wow, you know, I think you got something here. He said the same thing. Um, we would all agree, but what makes us think that our doctrine of creation is the only doctrine that affects literally everything? Every doctrine affects everything. Uh, got to duck out to argue for Pauline authorship of Hebrews. <laughs> Let's drive on brothers. Amen. Yeah. Keep yeah. fighting the good fight. <laughs> that's, I, that's, I have a very strong as well. <laughs> I have a very strong position on Pauline authorship of Hebrews um, that we can do a whole podcast on, but um, he was the very, I'm very, I feel very <laughs> I feel very strong about yes. my position. Uh, anyway, um, so we got uh, some posts here from the Biblical Christ Research Institute on Moeller, his positions on things. So let's go back to the uh, uh, to the thesis here. According to Osborne, oh yeah, Osborne's model is very similar to theological triage because it prioritizes the importance of doctrine relative to the politics of the theological decision making in the hmm. church. Hmm. Um, and Moeller's big uh, po uh, politician kind of guy. He likes politics and. And stuff. Uh, Moeller further developed his model of theological triage and his manual for preaching in a postmodern world. His manual for preaching in a postmodern world called "He Is Not Silent." Moeller Moeller puts this. <laughs> this uh, it's very funny. If you look at something, it's just a major feature now of the thing, the books he puts out. He included this chapter in this. Yeah. It was in the beginning of the book, and I'm thinking like, um, I don't know. It's kind of like uh, it kind of reminds me of, you know, you're driving cross country and you pull to a gas station and they have the different CDs, you know, that, that are available at the gas station to buy. It's like country songs. And it's like um, it's like one country artist. It's like their only one hit. And the entire the entire album is the, the different versions of that song. <laughs> 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 so this kind of reminds me. Um, that's that's or, a really good analogy. <laughs> or they or, or they quote like uh, or or they or they do like versions of like different versions of Elvis songs that you've already heard a million times. <laughs> um, 
so he's putting this in the beginning of uh, all his books. Um, anyway, uh, when when he encourages when he encouraged preachers to isolate what is most important in terms of theological gravity from which is less important, and so that's from his book Preaching in a Postmodern World. Um, this is very similar to Os Osborne's model. Moeller Moeller's isolation of doctrines in terms of their importance were categorized as first order doctrines that are fundamental and essential to Christian faith. Second order doctrines that are essential to church life and order in the local church and third order doctrines that do not threaten the fellowship of local church congregation and denomination. So that's kind of like sounds a lot like Osborne. Yeah, check 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 this out right quick before you yeah, keep reading. Yeah. He says uh -huh. uh, it is extremely difficult in the final analysis to decide which are cardinal and which are non-cardinal doctrines. The single criterion is theoretically the word of God, but as I have noted frequently, the Bible is always filtered through tradition and personal proclivity be before it becomes dogma. In fact, in actual practice, tradition more than scripture often decides which are considered cardinal issues. In reform circles, the Calvinist model is often seen as a cardinal doctrine. Likewise, the Arminian model within that tradition, dispensational groups turn the pre-trib rapture into a fundamental doctrine. So we need a control to indicate when a doctrine that we consider essential in scripture is actually a hobby horse on, wow. our, part, on our part. In other words, when it is our tradition rather than scripture that is making a decision. You know, you know, you know, one of the issues with this is, and probably the guys who uphold this in conservative, conservative circles wouldn't say, is there's this functional continuationism where it's, it's like they feel like they have to formulate doctrine. They have to take that which is already established out of the hands of the apostles. They have to look at the headship of Christ over the church and say, well, we really don't like that too much. So we have to now seat ourselves as the head. And it's this, you're creating a conflict so you can sell a solution. Yeah. And so what you're, what you're saying to Ron yeah. is, how's yes. that any different than Roman Catholicism? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's the papacy. You have the papacy, even in, in, a, in the evangelical mindset. When this cathedral, the Pope's chair, you know, that he teaches from the chair and he dictates, you know, what you just said. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that that quote though, I mean, I'm just seeing kind of like even the quote that Chris just read too is just kind of like, you know, there's it's just uh, it's so um, uh, just uh, all over the place, man. He's like contradicting themselves, going back and forth, and so, but he's but again, he's they want they want to uphold uh, sola scriptura, but then they keep going denying it, and then they they try to say it's important again, and then they deny it, and they say it's important again. Well, and as a person who as a person who would attend a church you're you're not you know when you walk in the door and and even if you're thinking okay i'm gonna i'm gonna hear the word you don't start there you start with well these are the things that men have determined to be important yeah mm -hmm. so you no longer are dealing with a unified yeah, that's corpus that's just really um, sad it that's is really and, you're not, and you're not and you're not under the headship of 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 christ as head over his church but by the practical outworking of what they're saying is is the way to go in the local church. All right, you're yeah, under the head headship of tradition. Absolutely. Before and more often that man, the senior pastor, 
Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, this is true. Solo scriptura. Absolutely. It really is. Yep. So. Um, the, the transition of doctrines from the pages of Scripture to the application of these doctrines in the life of the church go through this first stage evaluation. Therefore, the danger of doctrinal triage is when it becomes a principle in interpreting and applying God's word. And that's what they're using it as. So Muller argued that doctrines and theological issues are to be given highest priority in terms of the contemporary context. Um, you know, is a problem. So what is more, Muller argued that theological seriousness and maturity demand that we consider doctrinal issues in terms of their relative importance. On the other hand, now listen to this. On the other hand, the Chicago statement on biblical hermeneutics had a completely different take concerning the influence of the contemporary context on the relative importance of doctrine when the authors wrote this. And this was a reflection of soundness in evangelicalism. The guys who wrote this, put this together, um, there, you know, there, there's a downgrade controversy from after the Chicago statement. And, and these are some of the uh, molars that he would consider his friends were actually part of putting this together and signing this. This is what they said, and this is completely uh, antithetical to what Moeller's saying. Listen to this. We deny that the distinctions between the universal and particular mandates of Scripture can be determined by cultural and situational factors. <laughs> so, again, if people are listening here. Um, he, Moeller's saying that theological issues are being the highest priority in terms of contemporary context. More argue that theological serious maturity depend on what we consider doctrinal issues in terms of their relative importance. The guys who put together the Chicago statement, um, they, on the other hand, wrote, we deny that the distinctions between the universal and particular mandates of Scripture can be determined by cultural and situational factors. It's the exact opposite of what Moeller said. We further deny that the universal mandates may ever be treated as culturally or situationally relevant. So what has happened? Uh, why aren't people worried about this? Because you have this sound statement here. Um, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. Explaining hermeneutics, a commentary. Uh, ICBI Foundational Series 6, the Chicago Statement of, of Biblical Hermeneutics, Article Number 8, Oakland ICBI, 1983. Hermeneutics is the discipline that deals with the principles of biblical interpretation. That's what hermeneutics means. And that's from Robert Thomas, current hermeneutical trends towards explanation. Um, Jet's article, that's the uh, Journal of Evil Evangelical Theology. Is that what this, like, mm -hmm. say that right? The Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Yes. And, uh, so that's that's a definition from Robert Thomas, uh, who taught the Master Seminary, who's a Greek professor. I believe he was also uh, John MacArthur's professor. Is that right, Duran? Didn't MacArthur so. learn Greek from him when MacArthur was in? Um, I believe so. Seminary. Well, this is his definition. Hermeneutics is the discipline that deals with the principles of biblical interpretation. I mean, it's a very good definition. So, you, so people listening, take these def. You can use these definitions and put them on your Facebook or something. Be like, you know. I would like to define hermeneutics and quote, quote this stuff. Um, the goal of hermeneutics should be to determine the objective meaning from Scripture. Wouldn't you say? Wouldn't that, shouldn't that be the goal 
that we have yeah. to determine the objective meaning from the scripture. Yes. And, and so if we are illuminated by the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and we're, we're using the scripture self-attested principles of hermeneutics because he never works apart from that because he chose the human authors to write down what he wanted the scriptures and the scriptures tell us how we're supposed to interpret the scriptures and he illuminates us to understand the scriptures um and so um all that considered we will get the objective meaning and that's what we're we're protecting uh that's what we're guarding that's what paul wanted timothy to guard um the treasure that's entrusted to him uh, the goal of hermeneutics should be to determine the objective meaning from the scripture. And that's what I'm interested in doing. Now, I don't care about the cultural rel relevance of the culture or the time that I live in. If uh, Irenaeus interpreted the Bible correctly, then then he's like my best friend, even though he lived hundreds of years for me. Um, and so I'm saying that a lot of my best friends have died. Um, the, the, uh, the only way to accomplish this, ladies and gentlemen, is through exegesis of the scripture, drawing out the author's intended meaning by using the literal grammatic historical hermeneutic. And I have a little footnote down here from Grassmick. Some interesting names in this thesis. Grassmick. Uh, correctly defined grammatical historical contextual method of interpretation when he wrote this. This approach seeks the meaning of a segment of the scripture as required by the laws of grammar. I don't, I'm laughing because this is just insane, man. Um, I just this is insane to me. It's so it's, it seems so so obvious how bad this thing is, and I'm just trying so hard here, and people are just like, huh? Um, <laughs> this approach seeks the meaning of the segment of scripture as required by the laws of grammar, literary form, the facts of history. So we're not supposed to read the Bible like the Discovery Channel, you know. Did Jesus do this and then just questioning everything? And they got the Gospel of Thomas, which is a which we would consider, you know, not canonical. We'd say it was a, um, a Gnostic thing that was that came out much later. And they're questioning where he went they're questioning the text and all that stuff. But the Bible reflects the facts of history. So we read the factual account of his ministry in the, in the four the four Gospels. Part, the framework part of, part of the issue is that leaders in the church. They don't teach their congregations how to study the Bible for themselves. They don't give them the tools yeah. that they need to actually perform That's the it. literal grammatical historical hermeneutic. How many how many classes are at at church or even preaching about it? Do you actually hear that even said? Mm -hmm. Like why why not you know uh, Bible study? Why don't you actually have a real Bible study and say today we're going to learn about biblical hermeneutics, scripture self attested principles hermeneutics. Uh, but, but that just that just goes to show you that tradition is more important or controlling the congregation is more yes. important than actually giving them the, the tools that they need so that they could study and discover uh, the truth for themselves. We said it before. It's becoming rabbinical, like mm -hmm. your wisdom is tied to how many guys you can quote, not not your convictions about something, but right. how many people you can show you've read and then. Once you quote all those individuals, now you've redefined wisdom. Because if I can say what they said, it looks like I'm well studied in the area. As mm -hmm. opposed to here are my convictions, I'm learning to articulate my convictions. Here's what I believe because it's what I'm being taught. But nonetheless, I mean, you, you, you see it, that hermeneutics itself is no longer welcomed when you have individuals who have just worn enough on the people 
to yeah. accept second, third hand convictions, what I like to call three, four level quotes where you're commending the guy who quoted the guy for quoting the guy who quoted the guy. Yeah, that's pretty sad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's literally like you don't have to sit down before God's word to say whether I agree with Eric or not. I disagree with you. And biblically, here are, here are the scriptures that I'm laying before you as to why I disagree with your argument or I agree yeah, with your argument because. Yeah, it, exactly. And you haven't served God and you haven't been engaged in evangelism when you quoted someone else's quote who quoted someone else's quote who's commending another guy for quoting another guy. You're just you're just a parrot. While doing it on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, exactly. The thing is, it's profitable to keep people ignorant to the it truth. Is. This is true. It's a reality. Very it's a control so. method. That's what Roman Catholicism does. It's a control method to keep the masses from studying. And so if the masses study to show themselves approved and they realize what this man is not saying is not true, they will leave. If they are truly born again, they will walk away from that place and they can't have that. Yeah. Their job and their money mm -hmm. is tied to that. Yeah. That simple. Absolutely. And, uh, and when we're talking about uh, context or framework of context and literary genre, you know, there's gospel narrative. So there's there's uh, yeah. grammatical rules to follow, just like uh, literary genre of epistle, um, you know, poetry, uh, poetry, poetry yeah. like like the Psalms. You know, mm. there's narrative. Yeah, exactly. And Can so, I say this too? anybody yeah. that is studying to show themselves approved is often ostracized within churches. Uh, they, they, they're yeah. mocked and maligned and their name is thrown through the mud because they're standing up for what's true and they're reading and studying. And, and, and sadly, uh, many people that are listening have probably even experienced that desiring to want to know the truth only to have it suppressed by their leaders or their elders. Well, if that's happened to you, rest assured, uh, God sees it, stand firm and, and, and do not shrink back. Uh, you did not answer to man, you answer to God, but we, we've exactly. been through it and many people will go through it. Many people ha are going through it. Uh, and so uh, please be encouraged. Um, they they want to suppress the truth so they can justify their unrighteousness. Amen. And uh, and we want to get through the rest of this introduction. So we got uh, <laughs> one more page here. Listen, um, grass makes a good source. Uh, it's the best to approach because these features are features the interpreter must share with the author in determining the meaning. Uh, that's from Grassmick Principles and Practice of Greek Exegesis, page 11. Uh, the literal grammatical um, historical hermeneutic is scripture self-attested rule for interpreting. So I, I got to defend this. So if I'm saying this is what the Bible is saying is the self-attested rules for interpretation, I got to show you some scriptural support for that. And so mm -hmm. I do that. And this is where we're going to conclude. We conclude the introduction, um, page five and page six. For example, scripture upholds literal interpretation as its own self-attested principle because the scripture affirms authorial intent when it states the following. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All of it. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. Theopanustos, God breathed. He's talking about the origin of the scripture. It's this is God's word. He is the author. And so I want to thank God's thoughts after him. I I'm interested in the author's intended meaning, the authorial intent with the, the word author and authority um, are related because there's authority in the author. The author's saying, you know, the author's writing what he wrote. And so, you know, am I, I don't get to say, you know, well, I don't like what the author's saying. I'm going to interpret the way I want to interpret. You can't do that. You can't do that with the constitution. You can't do that with, 
you know, um, Stephen King. You can't do that with uh, the Bible because, you know, we didn't write the Bible. God chose the human authors to write down what God wanted the scriptures. And it's Theopanoustos, not that he breathed into them. That's not what th this text is saying. It's talking about the origin, Theopanoustos in Greek is God breathed. He's the author. And we should be interested in drawing out the author's intended meaning. Uh, what is more, the monolithic literal nature of biblical interpretation is affirmed in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, when the apostle Peter wrote this. But know this first of all. He said, this is the first thing you need to know. So biblical hermeneutics is uh, essential. It's first thing you need to know in, in the chronology of time. So when you're knowing anything in, in our time, what you, whether we live in this contemporary context or whether we live in the Reformation or, um, you know, uh, a thousand years from now, whatever. That when you're knowing these things and you're knowing the Bible, you need to know this, first of all, that there is a monolithic literal nature of biblical interpretation. Peter wrote, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Okay? So there's not multiple interpretations. There's only the author's interpretation. So we need to practice exegesis and draw out the author's intended meaning. We can't sit around in a circle on Tuesday night when we break up in community groups at our church and you have one guy um, who's another Tyrak and he, and you go around a circle um, and, and he reads the passage and he starts, he's like, you know, I didn't really prepare anything. I'm not really t a teacher, but they told me to do this. And uh, this kind of protects me because I'm not really supposed to be teaching anyway. And, and here you have it. So let me read the scripture and then we're going to go around the circle and you're going to tell me, what does this mean to you? And then one person says, well, this is what that this is what this means. And, and, then, and, then, and then you have like one guy in there that might be sound and then he turns to a giant flight. And afterwards, you know, they have refreshments. Um, so uh, but Peter has a, uh, something different to say about this. So what happens if you what, what happens if they went over second, second Peter, chapter one, verse 20? And, and the guy goes, this is our text that was picked for tonight on Tuesday night. But know this, first of all, the no obvious scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, what does that mean to you? <laughs> that, that means yeah. that refreshment might get tossed in your face if you, uh, if you disagree. That's what that means. Uh, <laughs> um, these verses, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, and we're looking at 2 oh, Timothy man. chapter 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.20. These verses refer to an entire corpus, all scripture. Okay? That is uh, an entire corpus, quantity of content quantity we're not talking about quality like tearing it off but we're talking about quantity in genesis through revelation so second timothy uh 3 16 and second peter 120 is talking about genesis through revelation yeah um all of scripture uh so it's referring to entire corpus and taught the literal principle of scripture namely the authorial intent of god Authorial intent is not subject to the reader in determining the authorial intent in any way other than the author purpose to communicate. And in, 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 other, in other words, you don't get to tell Paul what he meant to say. Yes. Yeah. And we, we can't be like Brian McLaren in the emergent movement. And we can't be like choose your own adventure books where we get to, you know, choose our own adventure. Uh, open theism and turn to page five or 10 or whatever. If you get in the car. Historical, historical criticism either. Yeah. Going deeper in uh, in those features of, you know, the liberal, um, uh, tubigent 
Greek influence of all those, um, all that criticism, textual criticism, and all the rest. Also, uh, utilizing the original languages that were used to compose the scripture are an inseparable principle, ladies and gentlemen, in drawing out the author's intended meaning. Because the original autographs were written in, in the Old Testament is Hebrew and some Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. So we got to go back and look at that. And, and, it, and if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, you have Bible Hub. You can, you can click on a word, and it can tell you what tense it's in. And, you, you, know, you know, if I can learn, anyone can learn it. Because uh, I didn't, you know, well, I'm going to just stop right there. <laughs> um, I was going to make fun of myself because I was basically illiterate when I grew up going to secular um, school, like uh, elementary and all the rest. Uh, so, uh, I'm not any better than anyone. And I don't think I read my first book until after I became a Christian in my twenties. Like I, I, I did the work to get by in high school and I was like a C student, you know, just doing the work and stuff, but I just, I wasn't interested in reading, you know, I was, you know, and so if you were to put me in front of the class and actually read a book, you know, people would laugh at me and call me illiterate. Uh, but God takes people like me that people laugh at and then. And then, you know, uh, uses that to, um, you know, go at people who think they know everything. And that, if you don't believe me, read First Corinthians. And so he, he, he gets pleasure in doing that. And, uh, and so even in this, if I'm writing this and you're ignoring me, um, then that's kind of the same principle. But look, uh, a guy who is illiterate and in high school wrote a thesis and has a master's degree now. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, anyway, uh, um, also, utilizing the original languages that were used to compose the scripture are inseparable principle in drawing out the author's intended meaning. Even the New Testament writers reference the grammatical nuances, ladies and gentlemen, of word forms to correctly interpret the scripture. For example, Galatians 3.16, this is what Paul wrote. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Singular. Singular. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather one and to your seed, that is Christ. And so singular plural those are grammatical features and i got that from albert uh, abner chow pointed that out in his uh writing is inerrancy inert inert uh that's inert inert uh closing the hermeneutical loophole inerrancy and intertextuality the inerrant word biblical historical theological and pastoral perspectives um Edited by John MacArthur, that's page two thirty one. That's a Puritan title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a long one. We appreciate those long titles. But also, um, if you if you can put you put Galatians three sixteen, but also ah, put Matthew okay. Matthew five eighteen on the board. Matthew five eighteen. All right. <laughs> uh, and there, and there. <laughs> that's the beauty of saying. Um, those times come out so not only not only proven that i that i was uh, illiterate <laughs> also is now the current oh, man. that we find ourselves in yes all right um uh, so we got the scripture on the board yeah get to it all right chapter five matthew there we go 18 yeah i'm just talking too much here i'm you know your mind's bro. moving faster than my mouth um 17 and 18, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. 
and he's referring to the you know the writings i did not come to abolish but to fulfill for truly i say to you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished so yeah. even in that he's pointing out you know grammatical nuances yeah. and markings and all the rest uh it's important so uh you know and the interpretation because again the new testament does not reinterpret the old testament the new testament does not reinterpret the old testament that's a lot of people who um you know you know post-millennial and amillennialists you know uh a lot of them think that the new testament reinterprets the old testament it does not so there's uh, when we get to Galatians 3.16 here, Paul is pointing out something, pointing out the correct interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant and who the seed is referring to. OK, it's not reinterpreting the Old Testament, but, you know, it's interpreting it correctly. And I think the Old Testament saints would have got that. They would know that Jesus is a seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, seed of David. And even in the new covenant, he talks about the word of God as a seed being planted in you. Uh, finally, Scripture upholds the historical principle of interpretation because the Word of God discloses events that have occurred in real history. So we would understand that feature of this hermeneutical principle is that the things that are described in Scripture uh, happened in real history. So you either believe that or not. To this effect, the Word of God presents the real facts of history with real geographies described and, and if you pay attention to those features, you'll see um, how remarkable and how accurate the Bible is and cultures. And so uh, it has interpreted these real events in history when the New Testament does not reinterpret the Old Testament, but interprets it correctly. Romans chapter four, Hebrews chapter 11. So there's uh, biblical arguments for why I'm saying that the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic is scripture's self-attested um, principle of interpretation so if you think it's a trash thesis um then you're calling the little grammatical historical hermeneutic a trash hermeneutical principle so well we have a so, uh one quick question that was yes. when we were when we were talking about how leaders leaders hamstring uh their their congregations because they don't mm -hmm. teach them how to study it so my mom asked the question could it be because there are so many schools that will teach those things. And so the attitude is, well, why teach it in the church? Because that's what seminaries are for. That's basically what the, what's being, but for me, it's, it's, it's not seminaries, for, it's the church's primary role to instruct their people, not the seminary, because everybody can't go to seminary. Yeah. So, that, so that's really a cop-out and an excuse. Um, and again, like you guys said, if they teach their people how to study, then it's not lucrative for them. Oh, yeah. Because because right. then when these people start studying and they discover that their pastor is not uh, rightly dividing the word of God, then they'll, they'll lose those people. So what happens when the COVID hits and no one can go to seminary or church in a general sense? Uh, we haven't stopped meeting my church. So I, I like to say God never took anything away. He's just testing us to see whether or not we would have courage to be faithful or not. So people are saying, what happens when God takes away church from you? Well, he didn't really take it away because he still wants the church to meet. He didn't take anything away. He's just, you know, this is an opportunity for us to be tested in that. So maybe one day uh, 
all these institutions will be shut down. And so we're going to, people are going to have to cry out to God for illumination and cry out to God for, um, you know, we need to be taught, but also we need, you know, we need to not create a system of elitism, you know, with saying that, you know, we're trained and uh, you have the lay people aren't trained and therefore, you know, they're relying on us and they can't, and whatever, whatever we say goes and you can't question anything that we say, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's just creating. So we just got to be careful with, uh, there's nothing wrong with going to seminary and all the rest, but we just got to be careful. It becomes um, like modern day Pharisees and their fraternity and what they were doing. So I'll say something. The problem too is, is that um, the assumption that uh, seminaries are what equip men to be faithful is a misunderstanding. Uh, You're called by God if that's what God's done and you go there and you excel. We're not against seminaries, but it's actually the church's role and responsibility to raise up men and women from among them. them. Oh yeah. So we are to train them. We're to see their gifts. We're to exhort them in those gifts. We're to see God working. And then, so we, we, we affirm them through that. And so men and women are raised up that way through sound doctrine and sound teaching. And so we've gotten so far away from that. And actually really an arrogance assumed that seminary somehow we've created this elitism that didn't even have to be there in the first place. The seminaries are not bad. They, they are good for those who are truly born again, truly going there to study, to know the language, truly in him and desire to be faithful. And so that they're a good thing when used properly. Uh, but, but the church's role and the church's uh, aim is that is to present all mature in the faith. So, uh, Duran, you want to add something? Where are you at? Yeah, I'm here. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think I said it before. I, I, I think anytime you're redefining wisdom, um, you'll come up with a novel hermeneutical principle. I think all the all the things that you brothers are saying is is you know I think there's some people perhaps listening to this that they they would see this on a national international scale. Um, because they've experienced it in so many places of just being yeah. worn down from yeah. uh-huh. from wanting to just sit down in front of the scriptures and study and the hope that there's an agreement when they hear a sermon preached. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think a lot of this can be corrupted, co- co- uh, corrected, not corrupted, but corrected uh, by uh, by the by the propensity for people to actually want to do the painstaking work of studying for themselves. Yeah. And yeah. I really think there's just so much I'm, and I'm not talking about reading endless books and then just underlining and quoting them. I'm talking about sitting down before a text and actually studying what the word of God says, or if there's a particular issue that you've come across, well, what does God's word say about that? And then being diligent in the study of that, you know, I, I think, I think that that normal tendency driven by the Holy Spirit of God will draw you away from this triage itself. Uh, you know, but I just think nowadays there's just so much social commentary. So many people have things to say about society, their yeah. own opinion. So many people are really just tied to the minds of men and just they've, they've in their minds, Christianity is this lucrative thing that has to explode financially. And if I'm a part of it, then now I'm growing and I'm maturing right. uh, as opposed to really, it's just the, the labor, the work of being before God's face in his scripture and wanting to be uh, tested in these things 
but also wanting to grow in these things. And I, I just, that's all simply put, but that is the absence of that is why we are where we are. And, you know, I just think this thesis is really just, it, it had an academic purpose in terms of it needed to be graded academically, but the heart behind it was really, we got to get back to studying the scripture. We got to yeah. get back. To, yeah. Uh, we got to get back to even just testing the things that we're hearing. We have to get back to, and not just testing things, but really developing a, a sound doctrine, yes. um, you know, yeah. behind, behind these, these things. Yeah, but I also want to point out, uh, when you talk about grades, I got an A on this. <laughs> yeah, no, it was well received. For those guys that want to call it a trash thesis. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was it was well received. So you can say you can say I got an A um, because I fulfilled a requirement, but it, you know, there, there's you got to that has it has something to do with measuring the quality of what is put into it and the work and all the rest too, and how many typos. Yeah, but anyway, I think, I, I I think brother, honestly, like, you know, just with people who. Are unreasonably critical of of what's been written, like without even testing it. I really just think that itself is a testimony to um, who they are. Yeah, yeah, to to who they are and why we have to get back to actually what the Word of God says. Yeah, exactly. who their leaders are. Their it, leaders oh, are yeah. too. Report, exactly. Because exactly. yeah. you're seeing those leaders fully formed in them. Right. So, so I, you know, I, I just, I think it comes down to. Uh, this addresses where people are with reference to their study of the word of God. If you're not studying the word of God, you have to test yourself, yeah. test yourself to see if you're in the faith, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so how can you live without the nourishment of his word? This, this, this topic, this study, this thesis, uh, this discourse that we've been going through, it's all designed to get you back to the word of God. Yes, exactly. That's what we're here for. 100%. And a recap as we're concluding tonight, uh, wasn't that painful? We went through the whole introduction. We're done with the introduction now. Just to recap, the introduction had to do with introducing uh, Dr. Moeller's definition of his system. He was presenting, um, examining some of those features and the things that he wrote in his definition, looking at something that I'm assuming that, that Moeller borrowed from with Grant Osborne, looking at other things, looking at the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy and hermeneutics and uh, how much has changed in conservative evangelicalism in the last several decades concerning that um, a discussion about the little grammatical historical hermeneutic and then a, um, a, a defense of the literal grammatical historical hermeneutic, you say ge geographical from the biblical text. And so next time we're going to get into the uh, historical development of triage. And that's going to be very exciting because we're going to talk about Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars, uh, definition of the word tier how this originated in the secular world, uh, triage at the inception of it to begin with, and uh, and how it was used in the medical world, and that there are some doctors in emergency med uh, medicine that are questioning, even on the secular level, the uh, integrity of this system, morally. So I'm excited. I'm excited for what's going to happen next next Sunday. All right. Yep. So thanks. Thanks for everyone listening and working through this with us. Oh, so that's it, you guys. Again, I thank my brothers in Christ for taking the time out of their schedules to do this podcast to try to bring the truth to those who would hear it. it says, this, this is my schedule now. This is like, <laughs> this is the highlight of the week. Awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. So, you know, we just want to bring the truth to you and 
like like uh, Duran said, we want to get you back to opening the Bible for yourself, searching the scriptures for yourself, studying the scriptures for yourself, wrestling with the scriptures for yourself, um, and 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 not being uh, dependent uh, on hyperlinks, YouTube videos, and you know books and other things, but. We, we want to equip you so that you will be able to study the scriptures for yourself. And going through this uh, thesis is, is part of that. You know, after we do the thesis, we'll be going through some other things as well to help you um, have your face before the word of God and so that the Holy Spirit can lead you into all truth. It's, that's what that's what we desire. So that's it for this episode. Uh, again, if you want to have if you have questions or comments, or even if you want to uh, join us on the show, just email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. And we will answer your questions and respond to your comments. And we'll, if you want to come on, we'll schedule a time for you to come on. So we thank you guys for your support. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing these uh, videos. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Have a great day. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Generation, generation.